Our gospel lesson this morning is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Listen now for God's word to you today. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But, wanting to justify himself, the man asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when the priest saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Though I was raised in East Texas, there was a brief period of time in 1980 when I almost lived in Richmond. My family was living in Dallas at the time. My dad was just out of medical school, and he interviewed for a position in thoracic surgery at the Medical College of Virginia, what is now VCU Medical Center. My dad was a runner-up for the position in Richmond, and a couple of years later, we moved to my now former hometown of Longview, Texas. And yet, as I was preparing this week, I wondered, what if my dad had been offered that fellowship at MCV? What if I'd moved to Richmond not in 2008, but in 1980? Given that I was baptized at First Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas, and that I grew up in First Presbyterian Church in Longview, Texas, it's quite likely that my parents would have visited this First Presbyterian Church in Richmond, Virginia. What if I had grown up in this church? 
When I was a kid, stories like the Good Samaritan offered me an image of how to be in the world, how to respond when someone was hurt. When I would hear stories in Sunday school, I would leave church on Sunday morning wanting to be moved with compassion, looking around for ways I could help those in need. It's a story we know well, the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a tale of how to be in relationship with one another, especially with those we see as our enemy. It is also a cautionary example of what can happen when we allow our religious practices in particular to get in the way of helping those in need. It's a necessary story for, all, for times like these, I'll say. Moments like these in our collective history when kindness and compassion seem to have been drowned out by anger and fear. It doesn't matter which side of any political or ideological spectrum we may come from, whether left or right, up or down, in or out, we are all walking around in various stages of tension, confusion, grief. In the last year and a half, it feels as though a collective fog has been lifted in the world. And what has been revealed is that we are all in a maze. But rather than a maze of corn or hay bales, it is a maze of glass where thick but transparent walls grow higher and higher between us, getting thicker and thicker the closer you move to the center. So as this fog continues lifting, we are left the result of everything being visible and everyone being lost. When, more than now, do we need to hear about someone's capacity for such radical kindness as we see in the story of the Good Samaritan? Just to set it up, a lawyer comes to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus answers by referencing, quoting the Shema, which, as a Jew, is the heart of his faith and practice. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus then follows it with the second commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Love of God and love of neighbor. If the Shema is the heart of what it means to live in right relationship with, the God, with God, the second commandment is the beating of that heart. The two cannot exist without each other. The heart without the beating is just a lump of flesh. The beating without the heart is just an empty rhythm. Together, though, together they are life. The lawyer's response shows he is clearly aware of the law, and yet he wants to justify himself, so he presses Jesus further for clarification and asks that question, who is my neighbor? Jesus responds to his question in his familiar fashion of telling a story. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a steep and dangerous passage, and on his way down the road, a man is beaten stripped and left for dead. He is then passed by not one but two people representing Israel's religious elite, a priest and a Levite. Neither of these two men stop to help the person dying by the side of the road, 
And it is entirely likely the priest and the Levite thought they were doing the thing required of them by their faith and worship, passing by because they were concerned with becoming ritually unclean. Maybe they were afraid of who else may be journeying down that road and that they would be in danger if they stopped. Maybe they just thought the man was dead or wasn't worth their time. Regardless, it is unlikely that they were cold or unfeeling people. It's just that in that moment, as they passed by this dying man, their religious identity took precedent over his life. And yet it is a third man, a Samaritan, who is so moved by his own compassion that he not only bandages the injured man's wounds, gently caring for them with oil and wine, but he also puts him on his own animal and he takes him to an inn to ensure this man receives the care he needs. If Luke's first century audience were to choose someone least likely to show such an act of benevolence, a Samaritan was about as an extreme an option as you could choose. A hated enemy of Israel, loathsome and unclean, with none of the knowledge of Torah, the priest and the Levite certainly possessed. In fact, just one chapter earlier in Luke 9, the Samaritans refused to welcome Jesus, angering the disciples James and John to such an extent that they asked permission to command fire to come down from heaven and consume the Samaritans. For Luke's audience listening to the story, the Samaritans were not only not good, they were the most readily available example of bad around. Though there he is, clearly a man of some wealth who is neither loathsome nor unclean. The Samaritan even pays the innkeeper to care for the man until he is well, ensuring he will return and reimburse the innkeeper for additional costs he may incur. The juxtaposition between the actions of the religious leaders and the Samaritan is the point of the story. We are called to be like the Samaritan if we want eternal life. And not just after we die, but while we are here on earth. Because eternal life begins in those moments when we recognize that we are imbued with the spirit, the same spirit, who moved the Samaritan with compassion who moved Jesus to action, who brought him back from the dead. And it is precisely because he embodies such model character, I feel it is particularly worth naming that the Samaritan is not good. He's not. Now, I'm not saying his actions aren't good. I'm saying that he is simply never referred to as good. He is not called the Good Samaritan. He is called a Samaritan, and he is called a neighbor. There is nowhere in any of the Greek texts when he is referred to as good, despite the fact that one of my Greek study Bibles has a heading, the Good Samaritan. Words matter in these moments. Jesus doesn't call him good. Now, by calling him good, we albeit unintentionally, I fear, are setting a standard by which a person's actions can make them good. We read the story as an example. This is what I am supposed to do to be a good person. I am supposed to take care of the people who I see as different than me. 
maybe even my enemy if I'm stretching, which I've got to be honest, that in itself is a tall enough order in times like these. But this story is not a roadmap for how to be good because Jesus doesn't command us to be good anywhere. It is a roadmap to finding our way home. The Samaritan's radical act of kindness is not that he is good, but that he is close. He is close enough to the man bleeding and suffering on the side of the road that he allows his compassion to move him to action. And what we find as a result is that he, without even trying, is good. I recently learned that one of the reasons that we shout when we are angry is because when we are angry with one another, our hearts beat at a greater dissonance. And so we feel like we are farther apart. So when we shout, we are trying to make up for the space between us, be it two inches, two feet, or two miles. That's why we talk quieter when we are in love, because our hearts beat in closer syncopation. We feel as though we are closer so our words come out more softly. It is in the heart and the beating of our hearts when we allow ourselves to be close enough to another person that we find the benevolent goodness that exists within us and has existed within us from the beginning. There is absolutely no way to make yourself be good because you are already good. The invitation is to let that goodness, that softness, that tenderness within you, that holiness, the invitation is to let that lead when you make your decisions as you interact with people around you in the world. It is the heart and the beating of the heart. Our love of God and our love of neighbor As beloved sons, daughters, and children of God, we are not called to be good. We are called to be close. When we are close, we experience the abundant life living within each and all of us. Over the last several months, I begin to integrate mindfulness and meditation into my life. Like many of us, I would maybe say all of us, I suspect the last year and a half, has revealed many things we'd been pretty content to ignore. With meditation, I am learning to sit with my discomfort, to ask questions when difficult feelings arise. And then with mindfulness, I am learning to turn the approach to the world from a more steady awareness of how my body responds when I am in the world. With meditation, I get to spend time looking inward, With mindfulness, I get to see how that examines and comes out into the world around me. And what I'm learning is that it's a lot simpler and much more complex than it seems being present with what is. And that's all we're doing is being present with what is. That's all we're invited to do. Not necessarily in these moments of meditation to analyze it or make sense of it or to fix it. It is just learning how to be and how to be present. And one of the simplest ways I have found to do this is by paying attention to my breath. 
When I sit with my breath and I pay attention to the way my belly slowly moves in and out, in and out as I breathe, in and out, in and out. As I begin to learn and sit with these difficult emotions, what I have found is that I am also discovering a deep well of joy. And as I allow the glass walls I have built around myself to fall, I find I have more energy for curiosity, for awe, for wonder. In and out, in and out. Breathing, breath, the spirit moving within us and connecting us to one another. The breath that is weaving us like a thread together, weaving us together in worship and carrying us into the world, beloveds that we are, every single one of us, every single one of us, good. Just want to close this morning with a story from a couple of years ago when I was serving communion at my home, I guess at that point, home congregation of Ginner Park. Now that I'm ordained, I'm a member of the presbytery. Um, so, but I'll call it my home congregation still. And a couple of years ago, while serving communion there, I was happily breaking off bread and placing it in people's hands. When one woman came up and took her piece, broke it in half, and handed it right back to me. You gave me too much, she said. Here, take some back. Unsure of what to do, I continued serving. COVID. <laughs> and yet, at the end of the worship... While shaking hands with folks at the back of the sanctuary, another congregant approached me. This one, at the time, a five-and-a-half-year-old named Gabe. Holding a quarter of the remaining communion loaf up to me, he asked, Would you like to remember Jesus? Now, I don't want to oversimplify things and say that if we learned to breathe and break bread together, we can actually change the world. But I truly do believe that if we learn to breathe and break bread together, we can begin to understand more about who we are, not only individually, but together. And I feel in those moments, I believe in those moments, that we will be surprised by the abundance of our own love and joy within ourselves, that we might be surprised by joy, and that we might find the goodness in all of us just longing to find its way home. Amen.